Race matters. 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 I'd like to acknowledge that we are broadcasting on unceded Gadigal land. This land has been in the hands of generations of Gadigal custodians for thousands of years before us, and it'll continue to be in their hands long after us too. It's a meeting place for sharing knowledge, stories and song, and we are privileged to be part of that storytelling here today and every day at FBI Radio. I pay my respects to Gadigal elders past and present. We're broadcasting from Redfern right now. This is the birthplace of black theatre in this country and a site for resistance and resilience for First Nations peoples. Welcome to Race Matters. This is a show hosted by people of colour, speaking with people of colour about the ways we understand and value our racial identities. I'm Tanya Ali. I'm Darren Lasagas. And did you watch MasterChef? Uh, spoiler warning here for the rest of the show, by the way, but we won't go into too much detail about what happens. Um... Plot-wise, I guess. But there's no denying how different the conversation around the show has changed since last season's. There has been reports of extraordinary representation, uh, previously unheard stories being told on national TV. I mean, Asian food cooked by Asian people and judged by an Asian woman. We simply love to see it. Uh, But what does the show mean in the broader context of Australia's understanding of race? And how the show exports this idea of race overseas. You'll hear from junkie writer Michelle Rennox and uh, one of our excellent new Race Matters team members, Millie Roberts, who chat about MasterChef and representation. It's a great chat, so stick around for that. Yeah, we've never really consciously or actively dove deep into food here on Race Matters, but there's so much to it. For many of us, food holds immense cultural and familial significance. And I caught up with food writer and fellow presenter here at FBI Radio, Lee Tran Lam, a little earlier this week to chat about a new Instagram account she's started called Diversity in Food Media Australia, shining a light on the many incredible people working in food in this country who aren't straight white chef bros. Uh, We also spoke about some of our early childhood food memories and her experience navigating the food industry as a person of colour. So that chat is coming up for you later on in the show. Before all that, though, Sampa the Great put out an incredible new track just a couple of days ago uh, along Side a searing music video. Have it is. Inc- I have watched it. It is incredible. There are some moments in there where I'm screaming. Truly, it, yeah, it's a mic drop moment. It you, is a mic drop moment. You gotta watch it if you haven't already. Uh, so, "Times Up" is the name of the song. Sampa says that it was a track made to reflect a conversation between two young black artists about the Australian music industry and the systemic racism within it, which is. So, like, it's just amazing to see a track like this with no... There's no input from white people. It's not for white people. And it's telling it like it is. Yeah, let's hear the track now. This is Sampa the Great. It features Crown. It's called Time's Up. I've seen the industry kill, dream of a dreamer. I've seen the industry scheme. And it's a killer. It's a master plan to break you. I'm the scheme. You're the schemer. Time's up, black republic. Where all my work will publish. How many times I inspired your rhymes and you would dub deal. We the inspiration. We the motivation. Take ideas, then you be in variation, the hourglass, I'm a cracker The fat of the cream, the black of the talent I'm taking matters in hand I'd rather challenge the industry Got no dignity, but 
reminiscing me searching for the diversity now. All I see is a bunch of mechanical breakdown. Do it till the planet to break down. On a mission to free ourselves. Verbally medicated, put on a shelf with no for sale. Neither asking for help, and I ain't asking for help. Not asking for help. We know for sale. Not asking for help. Now I can get you on one rage. We just searching for stuff. Go fuck yourself. Fuck, fuck the game. Fuck the blame. Fuck the audience. Fuck the dance. Fuck the list. Fuck the RBR. Cause I've seen the industry kill. Dream of a dreamer. Cause I've seen the industry kill. Dreams in a dream. You're listening to Race Matters with Darren Lasagas and Tanya Ali. And earlier this week, the latest season of MasterChef came to an end. It's been wildly popular, moving and powerful, especially according to federal MP <laughs> Alan Tudge, who said this in an interview responding to China's claim earlier this year that Australia is unsafe for international students following a rise in anti-Asian racism throughout this pandemic. And even when you look at pop culture, some of the most successful and popular people have got a more diverse background, such as on MasterChef at the moment, which is the most popular TV show, where one of the judges is Chinese, has an ethnic Chinese background, and many of the contestants who are hugely popular. This is an indication to me of what Australia is, where, where we treat people as individuals, we accept them for who they are and their contribution to our great country, and that's the way that I hope that Australia will always be. Uh, not only is it bizarre to imply a reality cooking show has any bearing on an extremely long-standing history of racism in this country, uh, but the judge that he's referring to, Melissa Leong, isn't Chinese. She's Singaporean-Australian, which is it's just so bleak. Well, I mean, look, she looks Asian, uh, Chinese people look Asian, <laughs> therefore this show will tell people not to be racist to Asian people. Yeah, that is definitely how it works. Yeah. But anyway, Darren, I know you're a fan of MasterChef. <laughs> what did this season mean to you? <laughs> yeah, I, I watched it. Yes, there was uh, a strong presence of Asian people on the show. Uh, Perling Yao, everyone's favourite auntie since she came on our screens what like 10 years ago yeah we were teens watching MasterChef for the first time um yeah and yes i cried i cried <laughs> in the uh in the childhood memory episode where they all cook dishes inspired by their past i mean Kana moans a story about coming to australia as a refugee Poe talks about reconnecting with her Malaysian heritage and makes Mel cry with a plate of her food. And uh, to be honest, I cried when her custard didn't set, but uh, (laughs) I guess, you know, that doesn't have anything to do with race. Just pure emotion. That's pure emotion. (laughs) Um, But anyway, these stories mean a lot when they're told on primetime national TV. Um, But that's where it becomes a little grey, I've found, um, having spent a little bit of time thinking about it. Because it's presented to us as, quote-unquote, reality TV. But does that mean it's a reflection of the reality of the Australia we live in? It's hard to say, or maybe it is easy to say, but I reckon it's the TV show equivalent of Harmony Day. Uh, Yes! Of the cultural melting pot of multiculturalism. MasterChef is one of Australia's biggest TV exports. Uh, It's watched in over 170 countries. And while it paints a picture of acceptance of camaraderie among, I mean, somewhat diverse people, uh, over the past few months, you know, people of Asian descent have been subject to public racist attacks. There are no Indigenous people contestants or guest judges in the show yet they've based entire challenges on utilizing native ingredients and it's a distraction Mm -hmm. uh and look sometimes it's a welcome one i don't deny the fact that sometimes i've had a i've had a day i've come home i mean i've been at home all day obviously (laughs) and i've turned it on i mean like oh okay this is what i need right now but 
at the same time, it's hard to separate it from the reality it deems to represent. I mean, yeah, it's escapist TV, mm. but it's so rooted in, yeah, this weird, like, I don't know, parallel universe almost that we are meant to live in, but we know we don't. Yeah, it's kind of insidious in that way because, you know, we look to shows like Love Island or The Bachelor, wherein we escape through these notions of romance and finding love. And yes, part of the side story of that is everyone on those shows is pretty much white. But on this show, at the forefront is this idea of people of colour producing things that the rest of Australia will be enriched by. That the fact that we consume this food makes us better people. But yeah, that's where it stops. It's like, what does that mean? Like, you know, why did... What's his name? I've already forgotten his name. Alan... Tudge. Tudge. <laughs> like, why is he using that as uh, a defense against ideas of racism stewing in Australia against people of Asian descent? It's because they think that this fixes it. You know? Exactly. If everyone's watching this in Australia, then surely we're okay with Asian people, you know? Yeah, we absolutely cannot be racist, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> well, Michelle Rennix wrote a really great long-form piece about MasterChef for Junkie earlier this week. It was titled, MasterChef Might Be Our Most Diverse Show, But Australia Desperately Needs to Catch Up. One of our wonderful new additions to the Race Matters team, Millie Roberts, spoke to Michelle about why this season resonated so hard and the limitations of representation. MasterChef Back to Win has just wrapped up and so has your live tweeting of each episode. Have you always been a fan of MasterChef? So MasterChef has been around for about a decade and I was a huge fan of the show like back in the early days as everyone was. But over the years, the show sort of lost its shine and the focus shifted away from food. So I haven't really been watching until now. I think, yeah, same. I definitely watched season one, Poe, Julie. It was like the dream team. And then it just kind of dwindled. Like, they, it did have definitely lost its charm. Yeah, it just kind of fizzled out into the end. And it was like, well, you know, maybe I am thinking I want more drama. Maybe My Kitchen Rules is the type of vibe I want. And then that got too dramatic. And it was yes. like, okay, I want to focus on the food again. Let me travel back a little bit. And on that note, what made this season different? So beyond us getting three new judges, which was... Uh, past winner Andy Allen, restauranter Jocks on Frillo, and food writer Melissa Leong. Um, it was actually a season full of fan favourites, which was great. And it featured a lot of diversity, which made watching the show a whole lot more fun. Talking about Melissa, it was super refreshing seeing a woman of colour as a judge. How do you think she performed in her debut? I think Melissa did an amazing job. So being a Singaporean Australian and also being a woman is, you know, two really hard things to do in a country like Australia where, you know, we've had three straight white wealthy men for the past decade and people have loved them. Um, but Melissa added a lot of much needed balance to the show. So her critiques were really descriptive, which is helpful for people watching a food show at home. Everyone wants to know what it tastes like. And her positive energy was just so refreshing when Reality TV is just such a toxic environment these days. And she definitely balanced out Andy, who was very much like, oh, mate, yeah, that was zinger. <laughs> she brought something. So I'm personally in love with Melissa. I think she's fashionable and elegant, eloquent, and so knowledgeable when it comes to food culture. But I don't think my opinion is shared with everyone. Could you touch on some of the racist backlash that against her? Oh, yeah. So <laughs> when the top 24 started to dwindle down and everyone's favourite started to get boot booted out and, you know, everyone has their favourite, there were a lot of claims around Melissa showing favouritism towards the Asian contestants. 
So as a result, on private Facebook groups, on Twitter, in the judges' own DMs, there was a lot of racism held at her. And about three weeks ago, Jock actually called out a racist troll on his Instagram page. And um, this person had just sent him some racial slurs about Melissa because he was unhappy with the way that Melissa was judging food on a show where her job is to judge food. Like, Mm. it's just such a strange thing to be angry about. But also because people are just racist altogether, MasterChef happening at the same time as coronavirus just wasn't a good mix. Mm. So during Melissa's um, Mystery Box episode where she had ingredients like chicken feet and gel and gal and, you know, Chinese five spice, a lot of racists were posting on Twitter and, you know, on Facebook saying, well, she probably has bat in her box, which is just, you know, pretty much Mm. Australia in a nutshell, I'd say. No, 100%. So overall, we're in 2020. We've come a long way, and at least since the first season of MasterChef on representation and diversity. But do you think we were ready for Melissa as a country? To be honest, I don't think Australia would ever be comfortable with a person of colour being in such a, you know, powerful position. But the fact is, Melissa isn't white and she isn't a man, so it was always going to be a struggle But also Melissa is a strong woman of colour and she knows that her existence does not need to be justified. So I think Australia just has to get ready. It gets to a point where it can no longer be a question of is Australia ready? Mm. They just have to be. And you mentioned this group beforehand and also in your piece for Junkie. It's a Facebook group called MasterChef Australia 2020. It has tens of thousands of members in there, including you and me. However, it's really proved to be a cesspit of problematic opinions Can you highlight some of the biases in this group? Yeah, the problem with Facebook, I think, in general is everyone has an opinion and everyone thinks their opinion is better than everyone else's. So it's just a lot of toxic hate between people, against people. It just grows and grows. Um, But when the competition got down to its pointy end and a lot of the Asian Australian contestants were still on the show, there was a lot of claims that the show was becoming too Asian, Mm. despite the fact that the ratio of uh, white to non-white contestants was a two to one. Mm. So it it's just weird that with the five or so Asian leaning challenges, people would think that it was unfair towards the white contestants and that it was actual a form of racism towards the white contestants that there happened to be a challenge about noodles or, you know, they had to cook with chicken feet one week. You know, it's a big... Facebook is a whole beast in itself, honestly. Mm. And there were a few highlights on the show, a number of tearjerker moments where cultural dishes transported people of colour back to their own childhood. Why do you think Back to Win resonated with audiences so much? For me as an Asian Australian, I think the reason Back to Win resonated so much was because the representation wasn't trivialised. It was real and it was raw. You know, challenges about pimping up two-minute noodles is something that all Asians do on the regular, but a lot of white people still have this stigma around you know noodles when you're broke and you're a college student and you know you have no money it's that's the kind of thing you eat but for Asians we just have that we crave two-minute noodles and it was really it was touching to see them put that on a show that's all about you know elevated cooking and making things nice but you know it's the simple things that people of color want to see on screens and For audiences seeing these weird foods that we brought to school and were teased about being celebrated on TV is something that we never thought we would see. You know, chicken feet, you know, going to yum cha, you know, durian, all of these things were just treated like they were normal ingredients, which is, you know, it just shows you how far 
MasterChef has gone considering 10 years ago, Poe did her century egg uh, congee dish, which was, you know, the biggest, you know, what is that? Old eggs, how could you? How dare you? And now look, it's just normal. And hearing first and second generation immigrants like openly cry and talk about their refugee experiences on mainstream TV is something that you don't see anywhere. No matter how diverse a lot of shows claim to be with, you know, them bringing two people on who might not be white, I think giving people an actual platform to talk about things that are important and that are happening is such a reason why this season was so celebrated. For me, the moment that I broke down, obviously the contestants and the judges had cried a few times on the show prior to this, but was in the second last episode, the semi-final with Reynolds, when he was speaking about growing up. I think it was his family is in the restaurant business. Did I make that up? Yeah, and he just talked about growing up in that environment, but his family having to provide and him not really having a connection. If I'm recalling this correctly, I could be completely off the bat. But then he just... It was the first time in the show that he, especially as an Asian-Australian male, had opened up and shown some vulnerability. I think they called him, like, Robot Reynolds. And it was just so beautiful, so poignant. It was great. I think it's a feeling that a lot of people... Well, a lot of Asians can relate to. You know, Mm. he spoke about doing the show not for him but to make his family proud and how he didn't really have a relationship with his parents because they were always working so hard. And that is such a thing. You know, you move to a new country with nothing to your name and you have to work so hard for your children. And that does mean you have to make a sacrifice. And to hear someone, especially an Asian male, where, you know, in the Asian culture, you're not meant to cry, you're not meant to show emotion, break down on national TV and speak about these things was really, for me, it was so touching because I was like, I never in my wildest dreams would have expected to see someone like Reynolds who's so poised and, Mm. you know, he was talked about being the robot of the season with no emotion. But the way way he broke down was like you could tell that kind of thing had been pent up for so long and he just let loose and it was waterfalls, honestly. Yeah, so cathartic and just, yeah, great moment in television. Truly one of MasterChef's best moments, I would say. A hundred percent. So let's talk about acting immigration minister Alan Tudge, who said that Australia wasn't racist because MasterChef was an example of multicultural Australia. However, only a third of contestants on this season were people of colour, and when it came down to the season finale, it was a showdown between two white women. What were your thoughts on the overall diversity of the season? I know we've touched on it a bit, but how does it reflect actual society? Yeah, so look, I don't, like... I do want to give credit where credit is due. MasterChef this season was diverse and that was really good. I've personally never seen so many people of colour in the same one season of a reality show before. Mm. But, you know, that representation was really for Asians in the moment. Mm. You know, there was a lot of ethnicities that weren't covered. So I think it was seven Asian Australians and then there was Rose, who's Middle Eastern. So that's Mm. eight people of colour, nine if you include Melissa. But, you know, where is people from Africa or Mexico or Peru. Like there are so many different places that we didn't touch. Mm. And I know that this season is an all-star season, so perhaps the critique doesn't really fit, but it Mm. would not be nice to see people perhaps who are Indigenous being the ones who speak about native ingredients and, you know, using up all of these things that Laura used in her finale. Because Australia is made up of so many different cultures. I find it hard to believe that we need to be bringing in 
white contestants to be specialists on certain cuisines when mm. we could actually have a person of that culture. Like Andy Allen himself says that he's, he specialises in Mexican food. Mm. Just, you know, like I am sure there are Mexican people in this country who would do it 20 times better. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just strange to call someone a specialist in that cuisine without championing championing people from that culture themselves. One of my grudges this season was just hearing all these great native ingredients and indigenous ingredients like finger lime. I've never heard the word finger lime used so much in my entire life and it was from the runner-up Laura and I was like where are the indigenous, the First Nations and Torres Strait Islander people on the show? I just It's just something that I hope we can see in future seasons with newcomers. It is good that we are introducing these ingredients on Mm. mainstream TV because a lot of people would never come across it otherwise. Personally, in the way I cook, I probably would never have even known what a finger line was if I saw Mm. it, but it would be so much better to give the platform to people of that culture because Jock has acted like he's some sort of native ingredient expert all season because because Laura worked there, she's now his little protege and Mm. it just, you know, it's good for educative purposes, but also I feel like MasterChef should aim to always champion voices from that culture. And for context, Arana is Jogs on Frillo's restaurant. It's based in... Adelaide? Adelaide, I think so. Definitely not New South Wales. And he does use a lot of native ingredients there, just in case anyone hasn't watched it. Mm. I think his whole restaurant is based on native ingredients. He um, kind of advertises himself as someone who really knows his native ingredients, which I'm sure he does, but also I'm sure also a lot of other people would too. There's this one episode that I can't shake off. It was a moment where contestants Brendan Pang and Khan Ong were pitted against each other in an Asian broth-off, and it was just so unsettling for me. Were there any tongue-in-cheek moments this season that made you a bit uncomfortable? Yeah, look, the broth-off really truly was the worst. Because <laughs> it's just kind of like, why can't people just be judged on what they make and on their own talents. And also why did you have to do it with broth? And why did you have to do it with the two Asian contestants? Cause I know that there have been a lot of episodes where a lot of people cook steak. There's mm. never been a steak off and there's mm-hmm. never been a parsnip puree off. So mm. why suddenly must it be the two Asian guys who are both cooking broth despite them being entirely different? I don't know. It just, it made me feel gross, but also, yeah. you know, a lot of little throwaway comments by um, the judges have made me feel kind of uncomfortable. So, like, again, Melissa's mystery box, Jock and Andy laughing and calling her choices evil and their worst nightmare. It's really tone deaf when people actually use those ingredients in everyday life. It's not like Melissa went into someone's backyard, dug up some stuff and said, we'll use it. It's like mm. she was talking to me about it and she said every single ingredient she chose for that box, she made a choice. So it all, you know, the Tasmanian chairs because she lived in Tasmania chicken feet because she would go to Yamcha with her family, spring onions because it features heavily in Singaporean cuisine. And, you know, this demonization of certain cultures and certain ingredients is why these Eurocentric views just continue to dominate the food industry. And it's why growing up kids are still being teased about what food they bring because they turn on the TV, watch MasterChef and, you know, some big fancy judge is saying, ew, that's gross. Why would you use that ingredient? You know, Mm. it's not, it's kind of a yucky feeling to me 
And in one of the pressure tests, it was hosted by white chef Benjamin Cooper from Chin Chin, who Melissa dubbed as a Thai food master. The dish itself, it was a jungle curry, and it sent the fan favorite Sarah Tiong home. Only a few apps later, the judge, Jock Zonfrillo, questioned whether Asian dishes could be classified as fine dining. So there's this contradiction here. How can Asian cuisines be gentrified in some respects and still not deemed sophisticated enough? The sad reality is Asian food will never be seen as fine dining or fancy until a white chef comes along and turns a dish into fusion food. You know, Asian food is really homely. As a culture, we value sitting around in groups and, you know, it's not three little pieces of meat. It's a whole mountain of food we all share. There's no, there's no rules. But, you know, for some reason, Asian food's only seen as good when there's three little pieces of chicken, a smear of this and like a little sprinkle of that and it's $57. It's mm. insane. Um, but for a lot of people in Australia, travelling out to Sydney's West to get authentic Asian food is just something they don't want to do. Mm-hmm. You know, they want the clout of a location tag from Chin Chin or they want an Instagram story of a neon sign with a little bit of chopsticks. You know, it's mm. kind of this food culture where everything needs to be Instagrammable and, you know, you need to show off that you're great. Mm. But this idea of fine dining is based on such a Eurocentric view. You know, mm. so few Asian restaurants feature in food awards like Michelin stars and mm-hmm. World 50 best restaurants because it's just for it to be considered good, it essentially needs to be white mm. because that's what people want. So sadly, to have authentic Asian food simply doesn't align with what's seen as sophisticated. So white chefs often just come and gentrify those dishes and then take those awards. So in this chat, we've talked about some of the wins for multiculturalism and MasterChef and yet some gaping holes for improvement. If you could rate it overall for representation on a scale of 1 to 10, what number would you give back to win? Honestly, I think I would rate this season probably a 7.5 to 8 out of 10. Mm -hmm. So while it has a lot of room to improve, it's still the most diversity I've ever seen on reality TV in Australia, probably ever. A lot of people in Australia just seem to use people of colour as token characters and just so that they can be like, well, look, it's not all white bread men on The Bachelor. We've also put an Asian man. Mm. We also have Indian men. And it's like, that's not enough. Mm. For MasterChef this year, it was, you know, we had people on the screens, but we also had challenges that were diverse. We had real conversations. You know, we championed, they did champion some um, some chefs of colour. There was the pasta, not pasta challenge back in the Melbourne Suburban Week, which was really good. Mm. But however, as an Asian Australian, I must also recognise my own bias because just because I personally found it diverse doesn't mean people of different backgrounds will too, you know. I saw a lot of myself on the show, but a lot of people probably didn't for themselves. Yeah, that's Millie Roberts and junkie writer Michelle Rennix there. You are listening to Race Matters with Darren Lasagas and Tanya Ali. And family meals, myth-like recipes passed down over generations. And even if you're like me, childhood rejection of your cultural food out of some hectic subconscious whitewashing. Food is so embedded in our earliest experiences of culture and race. But looking at the state of food, media to an extent internationally but especially locally like much of our other media on the surface it's pretty damn white food writer lee tran lam has been noticing this in the industry for over a decade and has started an instagram account called diversity in food media australia to combat it showcasing the diverse talent covering food across the country obviously right now a lot of people are thinking not just in food media about 
but about diversity across so many fields and how media and culture should be much more representative. And as you probably know with media, there's been almost every week there's been a publication closing or media outlet, you know, laying off everyone. And me and a bunch of other freelancers were thinking, how do we support underrepresented voices in media? How do we support diversity in media when it's not like we can go to an editor and say, hey, you should commission these 10 amazing people because, you know, there's not a lot of money in media right now. So we couldn't just go to go down the traditional route of saying, let's encourage people to publish these fantastic diverse writers or content creators. So what can we do as freelancers who have no money? <laughs> so I was thinking, why don't I start an Instagram account that profiles these people and editors can follow it, other people can follow it, and hopefully it will shine a spotlight on how diverse uh, the talent is that's out there because it's not just, you know, you know the film Ratatouille, it presents this very, you know, cranky stereotype of, you know, an angry white man who is very opinionated about food, but that that is not the... Um, extent of what food media is like in Australia. You have such a range of people covering food from all angles. And I thought it would be really great to spotlight that. And, you know, food, everyone has some sort of a relationship with food too. Uh, I guess that part in your first Instagram post on the diversity in food media account and you just referenced it then where you talk about aiming to go beyond the Ratatouille style stereotype of that cranky white restaurant critic. Why do you think that that stereotype exists? I think it's it's been really popular for a long time, not just in the movie Ratatouille, which is a film I love and definitely cry. Yeah, while a watching. great film. No shade on Ratatouille at all. <laughs> love Ratatouille. Um, but also, you know, that stereotype of, you know, Gordon Ramsay on his shows yelling at people for being idiots who don't know how to run a restaurant. And even, you know, one of the most popular cookbooks of the last few decades, White Heat by Marco Pierre White, which a lot of chefs kind of look to as a Bible, that that long-running uh, perception that, you know, you've got to be hard in the kitchen. If you want to be taken seriously, you have to be really aggressive and, you know, deal with, like, uh, a pretty brutal atmosphere. And you know, maybe that isn't the healthiest way to, uh, you know, cover food or see food as a, a legitimate topic. And I think one of the most illuminating counterpoints to that in um, recent times has been Samin Nosrat's um, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat show on Netflix. And just seeing someone who talks about food uh, without yelling at everyone um, with true enthusiasm, talking about cooking with her mother, talking about, I think it's the, the tardi dish, um, the Iranian rice dish that she cooks with her mother and how it's so culturally significant um, in Iranian um, culture to be able to make that dish really well and to even see her cry while eating some, you know, cheese. It's just nice to see food in a different way. I mean, and it was so interesting 
that she went to so many different parts of the world to showcase how differently food is perceived. Like when she went to that um, island in Japan where they had this guy who's making, he's been making soy sauce for such a long time and his uh, belief was more that like the enzymes and the bacteria and the culture, they're, they're what should get credit for the soy sauce rather than him. And that's such a different way to look at food rather than the really ego-driven um, perception we've seen for such a long time as, you know, epitomised by your Gordon Ramsay's and the like. Yeah, 100%. I guess as industries across the world start to gaze inward at the systemic racism and white supremacy that's been present within them for far too long, this pervasive whiteness and racism embedded in the food world is also being challenged right now by a rising crop of chefs, journalists and critics of colour like Samin, like yourself as well. Who are some of the other figures that are most inspiring you right now? Well, I have to say in America, I feel like food media is really progressive and it's been really impressive to see how out in front um, American food media has been. Um, there are several really prominent critics of colour in American media, like um, Soleil Ho. Uh, she's a Vietnamese-American queer woman. She ran for a long time a podcast called Racist Sandwich, which still continues and it was inspired by the fact that sometimes food is covered in uh, a really culturally questionable way. And she's all about, you know, asking why is food often framed uh, from a white perspective? You know, why is it all these foods supposedly have to be explained when a lot of people have grown up with these foods? Um, you know, I think about a recent article in the New York Times, which is, you know, a publication I really admire, but it got a lot of flack recently. It was a story about um, Thai fruit and how, oh, gosh, it's so smelly and hard to eat and it's so weird. And rambutan, which is this delicious fruit that I grew up eating and my parents loved as well, um, got compared to the coronavirus. What? And it's, yeah, yeah, it was described as looking like the coronavirus. Oh, God. And, you know, at a time when... You know, there have been so many attacks on people of Asian appearance because of the supposed um, connection to the pandemic. Like there's uh, a Wikipedia database that's been logging how many Asian people have been attacked for xenophobic reasons because of the pandemic. And there's 400 entries so far. So then to in that backdrop, at a time when there's a lot of racism against Asian people because of the coronavirus, then to describe this Asian fruit as resembling the coronavirus is really, you know, quite questionable. Um, a novelist, Monique Trung, said, why not just call it the Kung Flu of fruits, you know, <laughs> while you're doing that? Mm, God. And I think there's um, a really great uh, editor and writer who uh, broke it down, Asai Endelin. She did this really great breakdown of that New York Times article like pointing out the ways it was really quite problematic and said, you know, do Thai people describe their food as looking like a deadly virus? And that's a, I think that's a reason why you need diversity in food media because if someone, you know, from the New York Times 
decides to cast their opinion as fact that, you know, Asian fruit, it's so weird and stinky and bizarre and it gets on my fingernails, um, you need to actually zoom out and, you know, for instance, durian, which is a much maligned fruit in Western media. Whenever it's reported in Western media, it's always like, oh, it's so smelly and gross. But, you know, in Asia, like, it is called the king of fruits. Uh, a year ago, someone in Thailand paid almost $50,000 for one durian. Um, and also, there was a really great piece by Clarissa Way in, I think it was East Nikai, uh, where she talked about how it's so valued in Southeast Asia. You know, there's 670 million residents of Southeast Asia and beyond who actually really admire and celebrate the durian and the very different flavor profiles it has. And she says it can taste like a creamy custard or can kind of have this bitter, boozy liquor. And there are even these um, really extensive parties where rare uh, durian fruits are served like a tasting menu, almost like you would present sushi, you know. And that just shows you that there's this whole other side to durian, which is quite culturally rich and prized like even when there was a durian mcflurry in malaysia it became so popular that they had to bring it back the next year by popular demand so to kind of frame food within like a very narrow western perspective sometimes really does food a disservice and also kind of you know places a really unfair unfair value system of you know, the white perspective is more important than, you know, the Asian perspective. And we're going by numbers. Like, we're, we're talking about 670 million people. Uh, I think maybe some of them know what they're talking about. <laughs> they're like, Toria. <laughs> totally. Well, you know, I guess historically and it's continuing on today but I think as we've been speaking about it is getting better but the culinary industry from food media to those you know fancier restaurants and cafes that seem to get the most attention from white media um, it's all steeped in whitewashing and gentrification and you grew up in Cabramatta I would love to know how you've seen it kind of change over the years, both in regards to restaurants and also even just more generally and culturally. Yeah, it's so interesting. So when I grew up in Cabramatta, it was a very and continues to be a very multicultural place. Like I grew up and, you know, the people I caught the school bus with would be, you know, refugees from Cambodia or, you know, people whose family had come from Eastern Europe and, you know, that was normal to me. Like, I feel like I didn't know what racism was until I moved to, like, a much whiter suburb in the inner west and people wondered if I could speak English properly even though I had, like, topped my grade in my previous school. So um, that was kind of the cultural context. Like, um, it was such a culturally rich place to eat but because the media I grew up with was all white and I just thought the food that I grew up with was lesser, like I thought it was kind of wrong. And I I remember when like a KFC opened in Cabramatta, I was like, oh, my God, finally proper food. Whereas like <laughs> now, why would you want to go to a KFC in Cabramatta? That's like the last place you'd want to eat at in Cabramatta. 
So it's been interesting that over time, obviously, Cabramatta went from being like um, perceived in the press as, oh, this like drug riddled crime haven um, to like, hey, this is like a really awesome place to eat and people from all over Sydney come to eat here because there's such great food, um, you know, whether you want pho or bun sao or bun mi, you know. Um, so that's been really interesting. And another, I think, really interesting development has been, you know, for a long time, supposed ethnic food, and I put that in like really massive quotation marks, <laughs> um, ethnic food was only valued because it was cheap, right? You'd only see it covered in like the cheap eat section of a magazine or a, a food guide or a food publication. And then the restaurants that would always win awards would be like really expensive European style restaurants, often with like really extensive tasting menus. I think, you know, the epitome of this is um, the world's 50 best restaurants list. Supposedly covers the best restaurants around the world, but only has one restaurant from mainland China on its list. And that restaurant is run by a French guy. Uh, it only seats 10 people. The menu is, it starts from $800. Oh my God. And you know, like you think about how culturally rich Chinese cuisine is, like how different the regional cuisines are, like whether, you know, you have the more subtle Cantonese cuisine or you have like really spice heavy, like food from the Hunan province or, you know, food um, that's more inspired by the Middle East and geographic, um, you know, the border of uh, Xinjiang where, you know, there's a Uyghur population. You think about how different and exciting and delicious Chinese food is and that there's no restaurant on the world's 50 best restaurants list that even reflects this, but that the one restaurant from mainland China is a European-style restaurant and it's very expensive. Only 10 people can get into it and for a really long time, that's what food media has valued, the, the very expensive, inaccessible food that supposedly is more technically dazzling. Uh, but when you think about it, like, I don't know if you've ever tried to make a dumpling with 18 pleats in it. I've done it once or twice and completely failed. It is so hard. Um, and why is that not seen as, you know, as technically a feat? Um, and there was a great piece uh, on the ABC website two years ago written by Colin Ho and Nicholas Jordan, who are part of this um, group with me trying to, you know, promote more diversity in food media. They wrote a really good piece that explored why is it, as, you know, Chef Dan Hong says, people are willing to pay like 30 bucks for like Caccio Pepe, which is just pasta, cheese and pepper. It's really easy to make but they won't pay more than $10 for dumplings. And if you've ever made dumplings, they are truly hard to make. They are like technically quite a feat. So why, why is it that we, you know, value pasta, but we don't value noodles? And over recent years, I think there's been a much more um, inclusive conversation trying to recognize the fact that, you know, multicultural cuisine, with quotation marks as well, uh, has a lot of value beyond that it's cheap. And I think we have to start valuing that food beyond the fact that it is made um, 
below a certain price tag because um, by only valuing supposed, you know, immigrant cuisine or supposed ethnic food uh, because of what it costs, then it kind of ends up in this box and it's never allowed to grow out of that box. We only care about if it's less than $10, whereas that's not a limitation we put on French food or Italian food. Um, So I think it's been promising that there have been much more uh, interesting and complex conversations about how culturally rich food is beyond, you know, this place isn't worth, you know, covering because it's in a food court and nothing on the menu is over like $20. You know, it's as, you know, uh, culturally rich to look at, you know, dumplings as it is to look at, you know, French food. Lee Tran, you've been writing about food for about 13 years now on your blog, The Unbearable Lightness of Being Hungry, and have been making a podcast of the same name since 2012. Also, I've just got to say, what a great name. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Uh, could you take us to the back? Could you take us back to the blog's beginnings? What first drew you to writing about food? Yeah, it's really interesting that, you know, I never meant to like, create a supposed career out of you know covering food but I think in 2007 it was like the first time in my life I had like more than pizza money you know when you like finally get a job that pays you more than like you know two dollars you know <laughs> what I mean you're like oh I can buy something nicer than pizza even though pizza's awesome and it was the first time I was going to restaurants that you know you'd save up for and turn out to be like really memorable experiences and I thought I'd really love to remember this beyond like the night where I eat this dinner so it was a way to kind of um, you know distill those moments but also at that time and I think you know this might may, maybe a reason why you're at FBI Tanya but um, I really love the idea of celebrating what's in your backyard like celebrating what's happening in your local scene And at the time, I had a lot of friends who were, you know, had that attitude of, oh, you know, I'm moving to New York because that's where things really happen or I'm moving to London because that's, you know, where all the exciting stuff happens. And I thought, oh, you know, if everyone moves away, how is Sydney going to be an exciting place? So for me, the food blog was a way to kind of highlight how much amazing stuff is happening in Sydney and sometimes you just got to, you know, go to the next suburb or maybe travel an hour away or try something you've never tried before. And so that's how I started the food blog. And also at the time I I had a job that, you know, the people I worked with were really great, but, you know, it wasn't super creative. So having the food blog was a way I could, you know, do a bit more writing. And it's funny because, you know, if if you asked me when I started the blog, would I ever get a job out of it? I'd probably say, I don't think so because, you know, I started as a vegetarian. I'm sure a lot of publications would have been like, oh, we wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't want a vegetarian to write for us, even though maybe attitudes have since changed. And it's funny that over time I started to get, you know, some work out of it. I did some writing for the Herald. I did some writing for the Good Food Guide. And then after eight years, I ended up, with a job at the Good Food website for a year, covering for someone on maternity leave. And then since then, I've freelanced for like Gourmet Traveller, SBS Food. And, you know, I think maybe my journey into food media is really telling because um, I think a lot of the people that I think of who 
are like people of color in food media. They've all come into the industry as an outsider. They've come through it via a, an unconventional way. You know, we should probably be encouraging people to make their own media because possibly the way that media is at the moment, which is not in the most healthiest state, you know, the idea that you would get a job the traditional way is probably not going to happen at a time when a lot of media outlets are closing and a lot of uh, people are losing their jobs. And I think that's one of the ways through the Instagram account um, celebrating diversity in food media. I think um, that's maybe something I, I want to maybe subtly convey that, you know, don't wait for gatekeepers to give you permission to cover food. Go out and start your own podcast, start your own YouTube cooking channel, you know, make your own food magazine. Um, I think that's something we should be encouraging because, like, the the cultural landscape is just going to be so much more interesting if we have a more uh, diverse range of people covering food, which is inherently such a culturally rich topic anyway. Absolutely. Uh, one question that you ask of everyone that you profile on Diversity in Food Media Australia, uh, which I really love, revolves around early memories of food. Oh. It's such an evocative <laughs> thing. Uh, what's a childhood food memory of yours that sticks out? Wow. Isn't it terrible that I ask everyone this question and I'm totally blanking out as you were asking <laughs> me? Oh, I'm trying to think. You know, this is like maybe a bit embarrassing, but uh, the first and only time I ever went back to Vietnam with my parents and I was such a, like a sport brat and I was like throwing tantrums because there wasn't a McDonald's and just being like really awful as a child. <laughs> um, and I remember there was like one restaurant that was the closest thing to McDonald's and I was so upset because they didn't even have French fries. They only had like these really big fat sweet potatoes, like these almost like wedges. And I, you know, threw a tantrum over that because they weren't proper chips. Um, but now I think, God, it would be so much nicer to have that rather than, you know, McDonald's fries, which I can get anywhere. Um, but I do remember I also made my mum go out and get me like bunny every single day. Um, yeah, being the... <laughs> bratty child I was <laughs> um, and I remember we would also go to like an ice cream parlor near where we were staying in Vietnam and just having this really great ice cream with like peanuts on top and like drinking this um, all these really interesting juices out of plastic bags like made with tropical fruits and like even the juice with the local oranges which had more of like almost like a lime or mandarin flavor and just thinking, wow, how amazing is orange juice? Like that it's crazy that something so simple can be so refreshing um, and so memorable when it just happens to be from a different place. Oh, totally, totally. Were you a fussy eater as a kid? Uh, as you can tell, I was like a pretty rotten child. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think I don't think so. I I asked because like that story really resonated with me because I, oh. as a kid, I would actively, and I think it was probably part 
and parcel of like the broader whitewashing that I was doing as a kid growing up in the suburbs in Sydney. But I just rejected any Pakistani food. I was just like, I don't want a bar of it um, until I was quite a bit older, like in my teens. And then I realized how delicious like dal was and all of the food that my mom had just kind of stopped cooking for me because she knew that I wouldn't eat it and kind of started reintroducing that slowly. But it's so, so strange. I remember going to Pakistan when I was um, really little and yeah, just being super, super fussy and only eating like sweets and like chicken tikka maybe um but yeah it's just strange because obviously there is such an intrinsic connection between food and culture and family uh and for us growing up as diasporic kids like that relationship is even more loaded I guess or complex yeah I think so because I think maybe now there's more of a, a positive attitude about you know, growing up in a non-white background, you know, whereas when I was growing up, there was like a lot of shame in like not being a white kid. And, Mm. you know, I remember going to school and, you know, the teacher saying, well, talk about Shakespeare with your parents. And I was like, am I going to talk about Shakespeare (laughs) with my parents? They don't know who Shakespeare is, you know, just that that was seen as the default that Mm. you would grow up in an attitude, in a in a household where, yeah, you just talk about Shakespeare all the time. Um, whereas I think now it's much more celebrated uh, to, like, not grow up in a household that is literally a white bread <laughs> kind of household. And I wonder how much my attitude towards food would be different. Like, maybe I would know more about the food I grew up with rather than, like, unconsciously rejecting it when I was growing up. And there's so much food that I grew up with that I have memories of, but I wish I knew more about the cultural context or even the name. Like sometimes with foods, I'll look at it in a cookbook or I'll go to a restaurant and go, oh, so that that's what it's called. Because as a kid, I was never really encouraged to be excited about that food or, you know, really celebrate it or dive deeper. It was just more like, oh, well, it's not KFC or McDonald's. So... Yeah, it's not cool or like sexy to like <laughs> want to eat bunsao, you know, the Vietnamese crepes or even like, you know, I've grown up with tofu my entire life and for a long time, especially in Western media, it's like, oh, tofu doesn't taste like anything. And it's like, oh, if you think that you've never had really good tofu, because I, I think one of the best meals I ever had in my life was going to a tofu restaurant in Japan where there was one dish that it was it was just fried tofu and they presented it almost like a sandwich and it was so delicious. And, you know, I've had tofu in Japan where it's just literally a block of really simple tofu with some minced ginger on top and some soy sauce. And I think about that all the time, that it could be so simple and convey so much flavour. And it's interesting how much our attitudes about food are shaped by outside forces even when we think that they're not. Oh, totally. Also, that description of tofu has made me really hungry. I'm like, <laughs> that is what I'm having for dinner for sure. Um, finally, this is a question that we ask all of our guests here on Race Matters. Lee Chan Lam, when did you realise there is power in your race? Wow. 
gosh, it's such a big question. And for a long time, you think it's a very disempowering thing, you know, especially when people yell insults to you on a train or when you're like going about your business and someone yells at you a Chinese commie and you're like, why are you yelling at me? <laughs> you know. Um, but I think um, just having inherent knowledge and realizing that it is powerful as something that I've only come to later in life and not fe- felt as ashamed of and realizing the food that I grew up with was way better than McDonald's. <laughs> I guess that has been a pretty empowering thing. That's Lee Tran Lam on when she realised there was power in her race. Yeah, that's all from us this week. A big thank you to Lee Tran Lam and Michelle Rennix for coming on the show and a massive shout out to Millie Roberts who helped produce this episode. I'm Darren Lasagas. I'm Tanya Ali. You can find us at fbiradio.com forward slash race matters or wherever you get your podcasts and we'll catch you next week. Race matters. 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 Race matters.